This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Rob Conipier. Hello and welcome to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conibier. I'm broadcasting live from Wharton's San Francisco campus. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, where we focus on investing in early stage companies. It's a leading venture capital firm based out in the Silicon Valley Bay Area. So what is Launchpad? Launchpad is all about the ins and outs of planning a new business, raising the money you need, and making connections that count. We're live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and I switch off hosting with Carl Ulrich, who's the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School. If you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions during the show, give us a call. Our phone number is 844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So tonight we have two great guests. For the first hour, we have Jonathan Abrams. He is a social media entrepreneur. He's pretty well known for being the founder of Friendster and his latest creation, which we're going to hear all about, is Nuzzle, where he's the CEO. And then the second half of the show, from 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific time, we'll hear from Chris Hutchins, who's the CEO and co-founder of personal finance startup Grove. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show my first guest, Jonathan Abrams. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, happy to be here. So Jonathan Abrams is an entrepreneur who is pretty famous in the social media space before it was even called social media. He created the category, he created the site Friendster in 2002. It skyrocketed to success with millions of users in just a few months. They were one of the first startups to really learn about scaling challenges because of the success and the excitement for what they were doing. Uh, Things obviously didn't stay quite that way but he's learned a lot from that and created a lot of this. He's moved on from Friendster. He's creating new companies in the social media space, including Nuzzle, a news monitoring startup for people and businesses. So the first thing that I'd love to talk about just briefly before we get into the show is just share what Friendster was. And I know you've talked a lot about it in the past, but just just share what was the inspiration for it and what the site was for people that might not be familiar with it. Sure. So. The inspiration for Friendster really was my entire life and career. I don't really have one of those Pez dispenser stories, those sort of fake origin stories. I had been interested in using computers to connect people, really, um, since I got my Commodore 64, maybe a couple years after that, because when I first got it, I didn't have a modem. But even before the internet, I used, was, I don't know, for viewers who are young, they're not even going to know what this is, BBSs. And these were, you'd connect your Commodore or Apple computer with a modem to a telephone line, and you could still, even though the internet wasn't there yet, you could talk to other people. You and that was a people. bulletin board system. Bulletin board system, exactly. And I even ran one on my own Commodore 64 when I was a teenager. Of course, I had one phone line, so uh, you couldn't even be on the BBS at the same time as somebody else. If, 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 if one of my friends was using it and another uh, person tried to use it, and the, the, you know, the sum total users was probably like five people, they'd get a busy signal. You'd have to wait until one person locked off so the next person could even go on. It's hard to imagine something like Twitter where you could have five concurrent users. Right. So, I mean, to think about something like Friendster in the context of, of, of a BBS that only one person can use at, at a time is, is kind of funny. But many years later, um, after being somebody who'd spent my whole career doing that kind of stuff at Netscape, at Nortel, it was all about connecting people using technology. Uh, by the, around 2002, it was the dot-com crash period, so things were pretty slow, and it gave me a little bit of intellectual space to sort of take a step back, and I started thinking about the way, as an entrepreneur, I had to network with people, because I, when I moved to Silicon Valley from Canada, I didn't, I didn't know people already. I, I didn't go to Berkeley or Stanford, so I had to build my network sort of consciously, and I had been interested in how people connected on the internet really my whole life, or, or on computer networks, and prior to Friendster, people would generally use pseudonyms or handles, and you, you didn't really bring your real-life connections, whether they were friends, colleagues, family, neighbors, whatever. You didn't really bring that into your online life. They were very, very separate. And so I had this crazy idea of something where people would actually use their real names, and their real photos, and 
that whole sort of six degrees of separation concept, what if you actually mapped that out instead of just being a concept in a book? What if it was really on your computer screen and you could see, you know, I know Rob, and but here's three other people that Rob knows that I could meet through Rob, or maybe I'm looking at somebody's interesting profile and it says, well, actually, you know Rob and, and that person knows Rob, and, and this is not just a random person. This is somebody who has a connection to you. So one of the things that I've seen with companies when they get started and they have this, you talked about the bullshit origin story, or I don't know if you, fake is what you, you use that phrase, excuse me. I don't me. know if we're allowed to say those words on this. Oh, we're on Sirius XM. Okay. So is where the idea comes from, this idea of having an authentic profile, where did that come from? Was it something you saw and it just struck you one day or was it in conversations with other people that it kind of evolved to that idea? Yeah, insight. like I said, it, it wasn't actually just a moment. So there was no apple falling on my head. This was the result of years and years of being, uh, whether it was on BBSs or Usenet or early online community things like e-groups or hot or not or, or whatever. It was, you know, the fact that in, you know, you would go on GeoCities or any of these kind of things and, and it was sort of anonymous and you, or you, you'd use a handle or something like that. But the idea that I had was that your real life connection should be reflected online and you, you can't really do that if you're using uh, handles and pseudonyms, right? Because if I'm looking at somebody's page and it turns out that they know you and I know you and we actually have this real life connection, you can only illustrate that if you actually have decided, which was a very bizarre idea at the time, that we should actually use our real names and photos. Um, so that was sort of a prerequisite. But that in and of itself was a, was a strange idea at the time. And how do you launch the initial part? How did you get the very first iteration of it up and running? All I did was invite some of my own friends to use it. I just sent out, uh, the, I mean, it had an invite feature. And of course, today everybody is, is familiar with getting invites from, from websites and apps from other people you know. And but you created it. Uh, maybe. I mean, I don't, it certainly wasn't common as common then. So yeah, so I, there was a feature where uh, you would invite your friends and you had an, an you know, inherent sort of desire to do so because of the, the network effect. And so I w w basically was the, you know, the first user of this prototype, invited a few people and they got an email. And of course, you know, it, I think it's hard to understand how different that experience was with people who created social networks that were copied from Friendster. And after social networking was a thing and it was in the, in the news and magazines and stuff, because like when people got that invite, they had no idea, you know, what is this? And some people probably thought it was a scam or a joke or, or whatever. But did you code it yourself? Yeah, the first version. So people, I just invited friends and they, most of them tried it out. And it was just a pretty um, interesting thing because like the, immediately they saw a couple pictures of people they knew. And people are pretty interested in seeing pictures of your friends or people you know, right? Yeah. It's the kind, of, the kind of thing that caught people's attention. So people quickly started inviting their friends and they invited their friends and it, it literally uh, grew from me just inviting you know, 10 or 20 of my friends to millions of users very quickly and, and there, was, there was nothing other than that. It really was one of those unique organic uh, And did it start stories. as effectively a project, something you want to work on or had you thought of it being a company from the very beginning? Um, like I said, it was the dot-com crash period. It was 2002. And uh, I didn't necessarily assume that this was uh, a business. I mean, that was, it was pretty hard to know back then that this was even going to work, that people would really even use their real name or photo, that this was something. So I had no idea. But I also, because things were so sort of slow after the dot-com crash, I had, I guess, the, the time to sort of mess around with this crazy, uh, goofy idea um, and just, just say, yeah, well, you know, why not build this? Why not really build this and see what would happen? When did you get your first inbound call from a prospective investor? Hmm. It wasn't super quick because what was happening early on was that people, the initial investors were people who knew me and uh, um, just heard that I was working on something. And, you know, so the initial angel investors were people who knew me. Um, and then... The, you know, those initial rounds of investment were quite modest and small. Um, and it was growing exponentially, but when it was growing from 100 people to 1,000 people, from 1,000 people to 10,000 people, that was still not necessarily a visible thing. By the middle of 2003, when it was being written about in almost every magazine and newspaper in the country, 
that's when things changed and I started getting all these inbound calls because it, it turned out that somebody who's, you know, I was, I guess, in my early 30s in, Sa in San Francisco, or actually I was living in Mountain View at the time, um, but somebody, somebody in the Bay Area that age is connected to a lot of other people in their 20s and 30s in uh, New York and L.A. Because people, you know, anybody who's in their 20s and 30s in San Francisco probably has a lot of friends who are also in their 20s and 30s in, San, in, in L.A. and New York. So a very small number of degrees of separation from me were many young writers and journalists who were early users and thought it was fascinating and started writing articles about it. Um, so we got started getting all this press attention, and I think that's when the investor sort of group, who probably were older and not necessarily people using the product as much, started to read about it, and we started getting those kind of inquiries. Was that your first time fundraising? No, no, that was my second company. And you know, I've I've raised money for four venture back startups, and each experience has been actually completely different because you know things are always changing and when i started my first company i didn't even know what an angel investor was I, li I i literally like had no idea about that i moved to silicon valley i was an engineer at netscape i raised my first million dollars two years after moving here and during that time i would go to a lot of events at stanford and other uh organizations and i started meeting venture capitalists and learning what venture capital was learning how venture capital financings were constructed and all that kind of stuff but i still didn't even like know a single a uh, person who was like an angel investor or something. So that so uh, with Hotlinks, my first company, um, we went down one path. When we were doing Friendster, um, most of the venture capital firms around the time Friendster started, they had a lot of indigestion from the dot com crash. And the last <laughs> thing, yeah, the last thing somebody in you know late two thousand and two, early two thousand and three, you know, any any VCs was looking for was another dot com or internet kind of thing. Hey, it's growing really fast, and we don't exactly know how to monetize it. Yeah, I mean, I think once it started growing and growing and growing, eventually um, the whole, you know, Web 2.0 and all that kind of stuff started, and Friendster, I think, was part of that. But yeah, in the earliest days of Friendster, the idea that, that NEVC still basically, like, almost in hiding from the dot-com crash was going to give us a big check was probably unlikely. So that, that you know, but every situation, you know, I think for each one of the companies has been slightly different because the whole sort of world of, of you know, angels and VC, it's always, sort of always changing. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Jonathan Abrams, a social media entrepreneur well-known for founding a number of companies, including Friendster and Nuzzle, and Founders Den as well, known as a great place to start a company in San Francisco. So you mentioned running a bulletin board system on a Commodore 64. Where were you at the time? Where did I live? Uh, Toronto in Canada. Okay. And is that where you grew up? Yeah. yeah that's where I grew up. And then uh, after college, I moved to Ottawa. And I was a telecom software engineer at Nortel in, in Ottawa. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cold half the year, isn't it? It's to put insanely, it mildly. It's insanely cold. And when somebody in beautiful San Francisco is complaining that it's cold here, they have no idea. I don't know, unless you're from you know, Saskatoon or... Uh, Siberia or maybe North Dakota, you just have no idea how cold it can get in, in Ottawa in February. I, I have a pretty good idea. You have the canals ice over and then everybody skates. Yeah. I actually had to plug my car in overnight. You, you, you have oh, like an a, engine block heater? Yeah, it's exactly. Okay. And I think that's something that most people in San Francisco, you know, have no idea what that you have to plug your your car in so your engine doesn't freeze and, you know, and break. So, so I want to come back to this Commodore 64. Mm -hmm. Was this your first computer? That was the first computer I owned, yeah. Okay. And where where was it? Did you have it like in your bedroom as a teenager or where did it sit? Where were you running it as a server? Uh, I think it was in the basement. Okay. The ba you know, in Toronto people have basements. Okay. Unlike San Francisco. Okay. And would you go down like how many hours a day would you spend on it? Oh, I mean, I think I think it was quite a bit. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, from something from Stranger Things. Another Netflix show, yeah. I mean, I think I probably spent many, many, many hours on that Commodore 64 for uh, for much of my, you know, teenage years. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember having and wanting a an Apple II, and ended up not really getting it until the Apple II Plus came out. 
And I also remember coveting the TRS-80, if you remember really? that. The Tandy, the Trash-80. Really, 80. the Trash-80, yeah. because, yeah. A yeah. Co- I mean, a Commodore so it was in 60, the same time frame. It was contemporaneous, but a Commodore 64 guy would have made fun of anybody who wanted a Trash-80. Yeah. I mean, that was like the, 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 you know, the Jets and the, what's the other one from West Side Story? Like, yeah, no, the, the people, you know, people, Commodore and Atari and, and Apple, I mean, people would... It was kind of funny uh, that I think so, you, so you would you all get, communicate together on modems, but you would still make fun of each other. How did you get your hands on a Commodore 64? Did your parents buy it for you? Did you earn it somehow? Is it something you had con- – was it a considered purchase, as people like to say? It was a gift, but I think it was like my combination, like birthday, Hanukkah, uh, bar mitzvah, future college graduation in 10 years. So like it, was it was a big deal because those was. things were like 2000 bucks. Uh, I think at the time it was around – Eight or nine hundred dollars in Canadian dollars in nineteen eighty like two, so what that is in today's dollars I'm not sure, but it was still considered it's a big a lot purchase. Of money. Right. And the thing was is when I got the Commodore sixty four, the CPU and the keyboard were all in sort of one unit, and I had to connect it to the TV, which was very fuzzy, and I did not have a. Do you have an RF cable? Which yeah. You'd have like yeah. an RF adapter. Yeah, and okay. the you know the re- and the the quality of the image was very poor. And so all I had was that and I think a cassette deck. So um, I didn't have a disk drive. I didn't have a printer. I didn't have a modem. I didn't have a monitor. So basically, you know, every year I would try to save up enough money to acquire, you know, one of those things. The disc one of the peripherals. Right, because okay. the cassette deck was horrible and slow. So you had to get the disk drive and then you needed a monitor so you could actually see the screen because on a TV it was horrible. And then a printer and, and then of course at some point a modem so that I could actually sort of com- use this thing to communicate. But each one of those things was, you know, was another purchase. All of them pretty expensive at the time. How many hours a day do you think you were on it? <laughs> Maybe more than I was in school. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Probably so, too many. And my, my parents would say, you know, get off the computer. So how would you learn about what to do with it? How would you learn about how to program it? Taught yourself? Books? There was I, no internet, really, other than the bulletin board system type stuff at the time. Yeah, I definitely taught myself um, because a- any classes at school, I you know, knew more than the teachers did. There were magazines, and it's kind of another thing that's hard probably for young people to imagine, but back then, there was a a thing that kids like me would do is you'd get one of these magazines, you know, at the, I don't know, the bookstore or or somewhere, you'd buy Compute Magazine or one of these magazines, and in the back, they might have a computer program. And And you'd you'd type it in. You'd type it in to your Apple, your Commodore, whatever, and if you made one mistake, it wasn't going to work. So you better understand how the code worked. Yeah, so, I mean, that was truly insane, and of course, later (laughs) when I had a modem... I when could, occasionally they would do a typo or something in there. It's possible. Yeah. And when I had a modem, I could download a program from a BBS. But, you know, even before that, it was typing things in from magazines. So I learned from magazines and, and other things like that. But, yeah, one of the, one of the things was today there's so much available for free, whether it's Wikipedia or Stack Overflow or, like, you know, um, open source software. I mean, like somebody who wants to learn about computer science, as long as they have any Internet access in a computer, the amount of content that's available for free and is really great quality is amazing. You know, Khan Academy, all that kind of stuff. But back then, quite a different story. And for, for many decades, um, if you wanted to be programming computers, you know, oh, you wanted to program in this language. You need a compiler from Borland or you need an IDE from this. And that's $200 or $500. And, and you know, you need to go to this class and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was very expensive and probably really prohibited a lot of people from being able to do it. When did you get the first modem? Um, I think I got the Commodore 64 around end of 82. So the modem probably, I'm guessing, would have been maybe... 84, 85, something like that, I'm guessing. Was that a pretty transformational thing for you with the computer when you started to think about networking with and connecting to other people through this? Or had you thought about it for a while? It was. It definitely was because it allowed me to connect with other people who shared my interests who weren't necessarily the kids at school. You know, people, you know, I was, Toronto's a big city, but the trying to find other kids who were interested in computers or science fiction books or things that were my interests. I think today you, you, people just don't, you know, you go on Facebook, you go everywhere and you, you know, you've got, you're overloaded with information and connections and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, it was a big deal to be able to get It's online. hard to find the other kids that are in basements on Commodore 64s around the world, but the modem would let you do that. Right. And of course, the other people on those BBSs were other kids in basements on their computers who were exa- shared those interests. I mean, that's who were on those, those BBSs. 
So you graduated from high school, mm -hmm. and what drove you to come out to Netscape? What was the motivation? Did you just decide you wanted a change? Why Silicon Valley? Well, after college, I graduated computer science, went to Ottawa, like I said. So I'm working at Nortel doing initially telecommunication software. And while I was a computer science student, the web and Netscape and Mosaic and all those amazing things came out. And I, you know, downloading Mosaic the first time, downloading Netscape the first time, those were pivotal moments for me. But I didn't think I could get a job doing that stuff. So I, I went to probably at the time one of Canada's biggest high-tech employers doing telecom software. Um, and that was pretty boring. And I, uh, while I was working there, um, I created a little sort of in-house tool that was called Achoo, which was a play on Yahoo. And it was, <laughs> it was an intranet web directory. Nortel had 80,000 employees, tons of divisions, offices all over the world. So this was uh, an intranet web directory. And that was something that I did that was not part of my job, sort of like the way you know Google actually officially supported that kind of thing. And I got an opportunity to move out of the, you know, the traditional uh, division working on the, the phone software and work at a little computing research lab at Nortel. But still, it wasn't where the action was. And then Netscape and Yahoo went public. And I, you know, that news permeated up to Canada. I said, wow, wait a second, that kind of stuff that I loved, because um, I was a user of Yahoo when it was still like a, on a server at Stanford. I was like, those are companies. Wait a second. So Maybe it's interesting, but then it's a company and it's becoming valuable. Well, if those are companies, then they actually probably have engineers working there. And I could be one of those engineers. I could actually work on this cool internet stuff that I love and actually get paid to do internet stuff. And that was like, whoa. So I emailed my resume to Netscape and Yahoo. So you cold called, so to speak. Yeah. And how did they reach out to you? Email you back? Jump on the phone? Yeah, I mean, a lot of my, a lot of my uh, you know, career and things have been have been all about you know email and i just emailed them i didn't hear back from yahoo and but netscape uh responded interviewed me offered me a job so i moved to silicon valley to work at netscape and did they have a phone interview first oh boy it's i mean this is so long ago i'm sure they before they flew me to california i'm guessing they probably talked to me on the phone i would so, guess so you got on a plane that was was that your first trip in your life first trip in your life to california oh uh boy it might, it may have been. Yeah. I mean, when I, growing up in Toronto, you would go to like Buffalo and Florida. You wouldn't really go to California. Okay, so Buffalo is where you go if you want to go someplace warm. I'm guessing. No, not honestly From warm, Canada. but you know, we would still go. We would literally go to Buffalo, New York, for a vacation because you know, we could, you know, it's America. We could like shop at American stores, which which now I think Toronto's probably full of. But back then, it was it was still you know a fun little trip. So you came out and joined Netscape, mm -hmm. and what were you working on there? So I was a software engineer at Netscape in the Java um, team that was working on the Java implementation in the Netscape browser. Okay. And it's interesting to see how Netscape's unfolded over time. Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing company. And at the time, a lot of the smartest people in Silicon Valley were working at Netscape. But we ended up getting kind of crushed by Microsoft. And the company, while I was there, went from a thousand, I mean, it had just gotten public. And then I emailed them a resume. And, you know, by the time I got there, I was like employee a thousand. And then while I was there, it went from a thousand to three thousand. And we were trying to do so many things all at the same time. And at the same time, despite that, like you think about like web mail and instant messaging and just so many things, you know, search engines, so many things that Netscape could have easily been positioned to have, have won or, or owned that that they didn't do, but and they were trying to do network computers and groupware and tools and e-commerce and like so many different things. So and then ultimately, Microsoft kind of crushed the browser. So I'm imagining you showing up at Netscape for the first day. Either maybe you have a lunchbox in hand or something like that. Was there a big parking lot? Um, no, because it wasn't like Nortel. I mean, Nortel was more of like a company, a huge company with like these huge campuses and huge parking lots. And Netscape was a little smaller than that. But what was interesting is the parking lot at Netscape did include um, crazy cars. Like there would be Porsches. There would be uh, <laughs> what's that giant? What's that crazy car? The like Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah. A Hummer. There the was Humvee. There, there was a Hummer or a Humvee, yeah. and that those were not the cars in the in the parking lot at Nortel in Canada because there were engineers, of course, who had been pre-IPO at Netscape and made all this money, and they'd and you'd and you'd just come into the parking lot and there'd be these crazy kind of cars. And inside the company, it was compared, I mean, Nortel was a very Dilbert-esque company. And this, you know, now 
everybody's sort of, uh, you know, after that came the dot-com excess where every single company had Nerf balls and slides and all, you know, scooters and all that kind of stuff. But this came before that, and I still thought it was very sort of creative compared to Nortel, and they gave us free soda. What was your favorite soda? Uh, Coke, but Coke? The, the, okay. the point was, like, now, again, today, everybody knows... Talks about free meals and Google massages and Facebook and and Yeah, they give, you, they give you free food and, and, and so many amenities, but at the time, to actually get free sodas <laughs> was, was a big, big deal. deal. Okay. And to, yeah, to a, you know, 20-something coder who came from a company where, you, you know, you certainly didn't get free sodas, like, to, to, get, to get, to be like, I can get as many free sodas as I want at this company. You thought, wow, they are really it, treating us like stars. It sounds like when you showed, the day you showed up at Netscape was one of the happiest days of your life. I definitely it sounds was like excited. you had some real surprises, like really positive surprises. And I, I definitely was excited. And it, it is kind of funny because like for over 10 years, I've been living and working in San Francisco now. And the whole industry, both startups and VCs, have shifted up a lot. And now people like make fun of Sunnyvale or Mountain View as being boring. But compared to Ottawa, yeah, when I moved from Ottawa, which was freezing cold, to, to living in Silicon Valley and, and sort of being part of this culture and, you know, Apple and Yahoo and Hewlett Packard and all these sort of famous And you're companies. driving past them on your way to the office I each am. day. Yeah. It's, so I was it's excited. It's kind of shocking when you're out here for the first time and you see that, the proximity of everything. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if people are still that excited about it, but I was kind of like, you know, somebody from Wisconsin pulling up in the bus to Hollywood because I want to be an actor. You know, I was very excited to move to Silicon Valley and sort of be part of, like, the center of the tech universe. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is for the couple decades that have been in venture capital, there are a lot of people that ask about what's the best way to come out to the Bay Area to get involved, get involved in startups. One of the things that I like to say is it's great to join a company that's just gone public and a company that's well-regarded. Because what will end up happening is they have financing to survive for a while. They have financing to grow. You have people that have made a bunch of money and they're ready to do something new. So it's an amazing way to come in and build your network rapidly in a new area and stamp your resume with a company that's well-regarded, regardless sure. of whether it ultimately works out or not. Sure. And Netscape was an amazing aggregation of talent. Yeah, we, there were a lot of amazing people working there. Um, but it, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. It still didn't, you know, work out exactly right. And there's a similar company, General Magic, that was around the same time that I heard they're about to do a, a documentary on because General Magic was another one of those companies that had some of the best engineers in Silicon Valley and was doing all these interesting, interesting things, but ultimately uh, wasn't the huge commercial success, but all these important people who like worked on the iPhone or Pyramid Yard, whatever, worked at that company. Yeah. There were well, a lot of had Andy Rubin there. Yeah. With Android. Right, exactly. And, and you had Tony Fidel with the iPod. Right. And a lot of the interfaces were created in a lot of ways or brought to market in an early form through what Mark Perot was building there. Right, exactly. And at Netscape, we had a lot of amazing people, many of whom went on to do all sorts of other cool things. And we really, you know, this was the company that really commercialized the Internet. Well, with that, we need to take a short break. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm speaking with Jonathan Abrams. He is the CEO and founder of Nuzzle, which we're going to talk about right after this short break. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. Continuing my conversation this hour with Jonathan Abrams. He is the CEO and founder of Nuzzle. When we left off before the break, we heard about the creation of Friendster and his path into Silicon Valley through his Commodore 64, being a telecom engineer at Nortel and then making a leap to Netscape. But what I'd really like to hear about right now is the creation of Nuzzle. Could you share with the audience the elevator pitch for Nuzzle? Sure. So Nuzzle, we provide a couple of news tools. One of them gives you basically personalized news recommendations based on what your friends are sharing on social media, which is, I think, the product that, that you're most familiar with. We also launched a brand new product in January, and that's a keyword-based business news 
monitoring and research product, and that's a product that basically anybody, uh, business person, small business person, consultant, PR, communications, sales, marketing, if there's an industry, is it a companies, technologies, trends, anything you need a custom news report on, you can use that tool to get that. And both products really are part of the same vision that we have for the company, which is helping people s save time uh, but stay informed. And what really sort of this company represents is very different than where I was when I invented Friendster. Right now, um, in this sort of world we live in today, there's all these things, in fact, there's too much stuff. So there's all these things that are sort of inspired or descendants of Friendster. And now today, instead of inventing this stuff, now what we're, what we're trying to solve at Nuzzle is the fact that people are completely overloaded by all this stuff. They can't keep up. They can't keep up with the news, and they can't keep up with the social sharing, and they can't keep up with all the, the apps and the notifications and, and all this kind of stuff. So that's, that's sort of the new world we live in today that, that Nuzzle really entered in. I was like, man, I can't keep, keep up with all this stuff. I need a tool that helps tell me like this is the important stuff you should pay attention to and that's why I built Nuzzle. So I've been using it for several years now and I remember first hearing about it as an iPhone app, downloaded the iPhone app, connected it to I believe my Twitter feed, my Facebook um, connection, etc. And then it looks at what people are posting on those social networks and it gives me a feed on that. And is that a pretty typical user experience or what do, how do people tend to experience Nuzzle for the first time? Yeah, and it also includes if people are, are like retweeting or, or sharing. So it can be things that other people posted. But any, we try to As kind of a signal for you right. to decide. We try to aggregate all the social signals of all the people you're connected to and use them basically all as, as sort of votes of what's important. And that product, as you said, has been a very popular iPhone app. It's also an Android. And we also have a web product and mobile web and email. So some people, it's one of their favorite iPhone apps. It's one of the few alerts that they let buzz them on their phone. They have it on their home screen. And there are other people who get our email digest every morning, and they're sort of having a more email-focused experience. And some people get it all. Um, but yeah, so we have a, you know, a few different ways that you can in engage with Nuzzle. And then our new media intelligence product that I mentioned earlier, um, we actually haven't even added that yet because it's a few months old into the iPhone app. Um, and in, in some ways, we're deliberately trying to broaden the audience and not just have sort of the power users who use our app. But a lot of people basically are using that. Um, they're getting the report via email. And we also launched the very first integration for that with Slack so that somebody at a business can set up uh, a custom news report on their industry or a topic or whatever they need to keep on top of for their business and then send it into like their sales team channel on Slack or maybe the marketing team channel on Slack or whichever team they want. So um, that's an experience that right now is available on web, Slack, and email. And we'll probably add it to the apps as well at some point. We just haven't gotten around to it because it's pretty new. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting experience because I remember Dig. And you go to dig.com and you would see what was at the top based on the votes across the network. But here, with what you're doing, it's effectively giving a customized news feed to everybody based on the people that you follow, possibly respect, et cetera. How have you tuned the way in which you pick what to put at the top versus further down for people? What have you learned over time? Yeah, you're right that it is unlike the sort of the original version of Dig, which was everybody saw the same thing. This is personalized, and that's part of the magic of Nuzzle. The, the original Nuzzle product, the Nuzzle personal product, really is just based on the social signals. So there are a lot of people who, because the relevancy is so amazing and the experience is so magical, they assume that we're keeping track of everything they click on or we're doing all sorts of insane machine learning. And the reality is it's really just ranking things based on social signals. And then there's so many things we do behind the scenes. And to create a simple product, it's actually a lot of work. You have to do a lot of work behind the scenes to make it seem simple. So deduping and, and just so many things that Nuzzle has to do to sort of cope with the with the, a lot of the different things that publishers do. Um, but really, it, it is largely based on the social signals. And then the new product, the media intelligence product, we're actually, in that product, we're aggregating even more stuff, and uh, yet it's even sort of more simple because you can use the media intelligence product without connecting Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. You can just type in keywords and say, I want a report on stainless steel manufacturing. And we will actually use Twitter data even if you're not a Twitter user. Oh, to find out the best articles for that. Right. So to operate the Nuzzle personal service, we every day scan all the content being shared by around 100 million people on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we also have, like yourself, thousands of business influencers who use our product every day. So, you know, as you mentioned, 
uh, you're using it every day. There's, there's a lot of CEOs, journalists, VCs, a lot of really interesting business influencers who are addicts of the product. And we now, from that data, know what, those, uh, what sites those people read. So that is a signal we use to rank content. So if those people, you can sort of think of them as a panel as uh, business influencers. If those people read Wall Street Journal more than they read uh, VentureBeat and VentureBeat more than they read some random blog, like that's right because you data. see what they click through on, not yeah. just what you serve up to them, right? But it, what they click. So that's on. data we use to sort of rank the authority and importance of news sources. We also, when it comes to a specific article, we also know that. Let's say you wanted a, a, a report about, I don't know, coffee or drinking a coffee and like one story, let's say there were two stories from, from you know, equally important publishers and one got a ton of tweets and one did not. That's another signal we can use. And it's also, there's a search system, so we're looking at the keywords. So we're actually taking search and relevancy and social signals and reading, and you know, reading behavior from our users and sort of authority scores of publishers. We take all of that and just automatically combine it and just give people a report. How big's the company today? How many people? We are very lean. We're under 10 people. We always have been. Wow. Yeah. So, That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's it, we've kept the company lean. We've seen a bunch of the other sort of news app, news aggregation startups that were in Silicon Valley go to business. And you know now we've launched this entirely new sort of subscription business product that we're pretty excited about. And I think if we'd, if we'd grown the company too big prematurely, we probably would have not even made it this long to do that. But it's, it's kind of funny. I'd say every person at Nuzzle is probably doing 50, the work of like 50 people on the Apple News team where they have, you know, just an iPhone app. Obviously, it's not on Android or email and 200 people working on it. When did you start the company? Uh, we started uh, working on this like full time in the beginning in well, 2012. And then we had our first amount of capital was the end of 2012. But we actually didn't launch the product until 2014. It took around a year and a half because we, when we launched, we launched on web, email, and iPhone. And actually, that's a lot of work getting all of those. And, and especially the, the iPhone design, we had an initial version of the iPhone app that we pretty much threw out and redid because trying to, trying to, you know, the original prototype, I coded myself and it was basically a website and I basically showed it to a bunch of people and every one of them used it every day. Uh, so I thought, okay, there's something here. But then trying to cram that into the, the iPhone screen was quite a bit of, of work to, you know, to, to get that experience into that tiny screen. So, and, and a lot of those interfaces hadn't been de designed yet. Yeah, and of course we've, you know, then of course we've had to and change it, it over time. And it was smaller and, yeah. Yeah, and we've had to change it over time because like the whole like the flat look came. And yeah, so we've, you know, yeah, I mean, supporting iPhone, iPad, Android, web, email, mobile web, all that kind of stuff, it's a lot of work. So I'm looking at the icon right now and I've looked at this icon every day for <laughs> I don't know, the last three, four years. You have the statistics. You could probably tell me how many times I've opened it. But mm -hmm. is that a hedgehog or it is. is it is a hedgehog? It is a hedgehog. A lot of like Silicon Valley entrepreneurs love to create news aggregators and, and these types of tools. But a lot of them are, end up being like super complicated and have like very geeky names. And I wanted something that was a little bit more like Yahoo or Twitter in terms of the name. And then in terms of the icon, you know, I was sort of inspired Did you by consider calling it hedgehog. Calling it hedgehog? No, never. No, I wanted I wanted Not something that enough. was I wanted something that was sort of a word and sort of wasn't like Google or Twitter, and then the hedgehog. I actually deliberately thought I should have an animal, like like the Twitter bird or a few other examples like that. I thought that that's like a fun thing because because like this is the kind of thing that can some people I mean I wanted it to be not intimidating to people I wanted to sort of send the message that even though this is sort of a, a news aggregation tool it's it's an easy it's to friendly use. it's friendly it's approachable yeah not too big mm -hmm. what other animals did you consider uh, the top three choices ended up being um, Elephant, which I think, maybe, <laughs> I think does Evernote use an elephant? Yeah, that, that was kind of taken. Right. And, uh, and then actually there was a rodent that I liked, and I actually did a test. Was I, it a type of rodent, a specific rodent? Uh, it probably was, but I actually was never quite sure if it was supposed to depict a rat or a mouse. It probably <laughs> doesn't really matter. But I actually liked it, and, and it, to some sense, my sort of like ironic sense of humor thought that a rat or modem was actually maybe kind of funny. But what I did was I took the three top ones, um, the, the, the rat or, or mouse, the elephant and the 
uh, hedgehog, and I sent it to 50 friends, and specifically 25 men and 25 women, because I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't just being oblivious to how different types of people would react to this. And when I did that survey, uh, the results were pretty overwhelming. Everybody hated the rat or, or mouse or whatever it was. So while I kind of thought it would have been funny to have a rat or mouse icon, the, the data of the 50-friend poll said, yeah, don't do that. And then who actually did the graphic design for the icon? I actually used a service called 99designs, which is a great service because it allows you to get a lot of choices and options. But you gave them direction. You said, we're going with a hedgehog. Well, the beauty of 99designs Or did you do the hedgehog and the rat to test them side by side? The, those were all finalists from 99designs. So the beauty of 99designs is it's, a, it's essentially a contest. You put up 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks or whatever, and people from all over the world submit things. And then you go in and you actually do give feedback and you eliminate the ones you don't like. And then people do learn based on that feedback. And it tends, then there's some you know, iterations that hopefully incorporate that feedback. But then I took the sort of the finalists at the end of that process, and then I surveyed the 50 friends, and that's when I you know, got the feedback. Yeah, that rat or mouse idea, don't do that. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like it was a very focused approach, and at the same time, you didn't need to do hundreds. 50 was enough. You probably found out after the first 20 people, I would guess, which way it was going to end up. Yeah, I mean, I think 50 friends is enough, but it was also 50 friends... Uh, confirming that you know the, the sort of finalists I'd already chosen, um, so yeah, it was all pretty efficient process. But I had a very, you know, I had a very very specific idea of the brand and what I wanted to do. And if you look, I think at the history of some um, news aggregation products in Silicon Valley, some of them have very like geeky sounding names, and they're they're you know, and then they're very complicated products. And it's like this is going to be great. Just come in and spend three hours configuring it. Well, I have to say without question, it's the best newsreader I've ever used. And anybody that's listening right now should download it. Just Nuzzle. How do you spell it? N-U-Z-Z-E-L. That's right. But they should also check out our new <laughs> intelligence product, especially for this podcast, right? Because if you are a business person and, you know, the product, like we said, there, there, there are thousands of, of VCs and journalists and entrepreneurs who use it every day. But... Not everybody is sort of that news junkie, Twitter power user type that, that loves that product. And the new product is really a product that anybody, you don't have to be a Twitter power user. You don't have to be a news junkie. You just need a report on anything, whatever business topic it is. And you can just type in those keywords and get a report on that topic. And you don't really have to be that sort of Twitter power user to, to benefit from it. So you've had four startups now. Mm -hmm. And before we get into that, if you're tuning in right now, I'm Rob Connybeer. You're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Jonathan Abrams, well-known for being the founder of Friendster, but more importantly, his current creation, Nuzzle, is probably about the best news aggregation service that's out there today on the Internet. Thank you. So, so when you look back at these four startups that you've backed you you do work with a number of people that you mentor guide give advice to what are a few of the most important things that you feel you need to share with entrepreneurs especially brand new entrepreneurs wow well i think it, you know it for each experience it slightly changes because you know working in the dot-com boom or working in now the environment's slightly different of course my experience changes um, you know, the, the, the experience I think we had with Hotlinks was, in addition to going through the dot-com boom and dot-com crash, which was an impossible period for almost any startup, we were too early, so that would be an issue of timing. Um, and, you know, we really wanted people to share links with each other. That's what the idea with Hotlinks was, which, of course, is, is a big part of what's going on with Facebook and Twitter today. But the idea of something like like that or something like Pinterest in 1999, it just wasn't going to happen. So wouldn't that it was, work because there's kind of a timing question. You have to have the maturity of the Internet. Or it, it wouldn't have worked for probably five different reasons. So that was way too early. In the case of Friendster, I would say the problem was uh, not keeping control of the company. And we went through six CEOs in six years. I was pushed out of the company. And, you know, the company had a lot of potential. It should have been a multi-billion dollar company, could have easily been. And, you know, unfortunately, I learned a lot of, um, you know, a lot of painful lessons there. I kind of say that I look behind the curtain of how venture capital works. Um, and do, you then think, do you think with that, talking about that, do you think that one of the challenges at the time is there may be a stronger founder network 
today to be able to get advice on how to deal with that that wasn't available at that time? That's certainly true. At the time, this was before AngelList, Y Combinator, any of that stuff. So um, the the likelihood that I was going to sort of know ahead of time to to even think of trying to like retain control of the company and, and some of the things that could, could go wrong, yeah, there, there wasn't as much support, as much information. It was a different era in that respect. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one because having invested for over 20 years now, I've seen a fundamental shift in not just how founders think about continuing to run companies, but also investor inclination to want that, mm -hmm. I think has increased very dramatically as well. And I think there's something around founders being able to learn from other founders that really wasn't present before. Yeah, I mean, this was obviously was before social media. So yeah, so that were, helps. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, there were not, uh, there weren't blogs. I mean, you can make fun of all the medium posts from founders talking about their success or failure of their startups, but like, you know, amidst all the noise, amidst all the sort of self-promotional VC blogs, there is a lot of useful content. Some of it's not useful, but a lot of it is. And yeah, none of that existed circa 2002. So you were going through what you learned from each of these. It sounds like hot links, too early. Mm -hmm. Market timing really matters. Yeah. Friendster, how to retain control. Mm -hmm. What about the other lessons? Well, I think the the retaining control is definitely a big one. With the other companies, it's really about product market fit. And, you know, with Hotlinks, it was um, it was a very valid vision, but it just wasn't going to happen then. With Nuzzle, you know, what we've realized is we've got this product that is one of the best. We've got amazing people who use it every day. We've gotten awards and rave reviews and all this kind of love and adoration. But we realized that we don't think any independent news app or news aggregation startup is going to be able to get to the kind of scale for B2C success in a world where Apple News is built into every iPhone and people are, for better or worse, getting their news on Facebook, which has billions of users. And what people are getting on Facebook is the opposite of Nuzzle. People are using Nuzzle to find out the important stuff they really need to, to pay attention to when they have limited time, and people on Facebook are seeing fake news and clickbait and all this horrible stuff. But it's still insanely hard to compete with that. And a lot of the other interesting news app companies have gone into business. You mentioned earlier Dig. Dig, uh, the original Dig sort of failed. Then it was purchased by Betaworks and got funding from Gannett. And then just recently, it, the remnants were sold. And we were actually asked if we wanted to buy some of it. Um, so that's sort of the, the landscape today. And that's why we realized that in slightly adjacent areas, and, and, and I don't think we could charge for, charge for it either because people are already getting news, maybe not the stuff they need to know about, but they're getting news from Apple and Facebook and all these kind of sources. But people are paying a lot of money to companies like Meltwater and Sysian and LexisNexis and Reuters and Bloomberg and, and, and Hootsuite for uh, business intelligence, for media monitoring, for all these kind of things that are, that are kind of slightly adjacent to what we're doing. And of course, we've always been you know, really used by, by business users. It's not really been sort of just regular people using Nuzzle for entertainment or politics. It's been people who are sort of these business influencers. So that's a big realization that we've had now. And, you know, and again, it, it, you know, product market fit, there's two parts of it. One of it is product and one of it is market. And, and I'm pretty good at creating products, obviously, from friends to a Nuzzle. But the thing is, if you, if you have a great product, but you're, you're not in the right market, that's where so many startups are just not going to make it. Are these the three biggest pieces of advice you give as a mentor? Um, the or advice, does it depend a lot on what you see? You get to know somebody, and then you have a lot of pattern recognition from what you've experienced before. Well, I hate the term pattern recognition, actually. It's a pet peeve of mine. I think you know, what I do is, is not pattern recognition. I think that's you know, the fact that VCs actually brag about doing pattern recognition is, is a problem. But I also don't love generic advice. And, I, you know, and saying you know, retain control... The reality is uh, an inexperienced entrepreneur may not have the opportunity, and, and for them to even understand what that even means early on is challenging. Um, but when I am advising or mentoring uh, startups, whether it's at um, uh, Founders Den or, or an angel investor or many of the other things I'm involved in, I like to give advice that is specific and contextual, not generic advice. I mean, a lot of the advice I think that VCs give on Twitter and Medium and, and blogs is very generic. And the reality is every startup is in a, in, a, in a different situation. And 
and every startup that becomes successful often becomes successful in a, in a unique way that's not even repeatable. Um, so yeah, I mean, I like to, to be the person that when somebody's grappling with some problem that I'm gonna give them you know, a unique perspective that's hopefully useful, but it's really based on what they're actually dealing with. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this specific and contextual piece is a really important insight. And you're right, there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley that go to what they think of almost as the playbook. Yeah, and, and I think part of that is just human nature. If you're a venture capitalist and you're on 20 boards and you're trying to justify your management fee and, you know, and add value, um, a lot of people are like, well, you know what? What we did at, at you know, the big, you know, your big famous success, what we did at blah, 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 is whatever. And that's not always relevant. And the likelihood that anybody can be on 10 or 20 boards and be uh, weighing in with, with the right, um, you know, with the right response on a whole bunch of different types of issues and a whole bunch of different types of companies at different stages, the likelihood of anybody who knows all that, it's, it's not really realistic. So what about the flip side? What's the best advice you received? Well, it's- And it's, it may be specific and contextual, but I'm sure there was a moment in your career where you got one or two pieces of advice that were pretty important. Well, it's interesting because even though I'm now working on my fourth startup and I mentor and advise people, I still actually, actually am always seeking out advice. And especially as Nuzzle has now moved into this new direction, we've talked to a lot of people for advice because I, I mean, I am an, uh, an investor in a lot of great SaaS companies, but I think most people think of me as a founder more for the social media than, than the business tool, even, even though I have obviously done a lot of stuff, including you know, even telecom. So we've been asking a lot of people advice and what we have found, uh, unfortunately, is that uh, growth hackers, consultants, investors, venture capitalists, for the most part, their advice is not useful. And that's, that's you know, not a going to be, some people are not going to like me saying that. And that, you know, it's not 100% true, but it's like 90% true. And the best advice we've gotten is consistently from operators who are working, uh, who are already familiar with what we're doing and they're working in some adjacent thing and they're drawing from their experience and they're actually in the trenches right now and they're not telling us about something that may or not be related or that's from 10 years ago. They're talking about what's working today and we've gotten tremendously useful advice from folks like that. Um, so for example, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get our first couple thousand paying customers to subscribe to the Nuzzle Media Intelligence product. And some of the, the entrepreneurs and operators that I've talked to for advice, like one, one is my friend Tom Williams. I mean, he, we were just talking to him about some, you know, we're sending some emails to some of our users and some people and saying, you know, hey, there's this new tool, you should check it out. And then there's a link and he said, you know what? Why don't you just say, reply to this email and tell us the, the keywords and topics you're interested in. And we'll just create the report for you. And I was like, and oh. it's very pragmatic. Yeah. So and we, actually, and we tried it. And guess what happened? Worked really well. Yeah. Well, great story. I want to make sure you have an opportunity quickly for where can people follow you in particular online? Probably the best is Twitter. And I'm at, at Abrams. Okay. A-B-R-A-M-S. And again, people can obviously find Nuzzle. What's the preferred place you'd want people to find Nuzzle? Well, like I said, we have email, we have iPhone, we have Android, we have web, but the best thing to do is just go to nuzzle.com and that's where you'll see everything. And the Nuzzle Media Intelligence product is at nuzzle.com slash intelligence. Great. And for people who might not know how to spell it, N-U-Z-Z-E-L. N-U-Z-Z-E-L. But so, the good thing is if you go to N-U-Z-Z-L-E.com, it redirects. Of course it does. It's part of your experience. But Jonathan, thank you so much for My joining pleasure. us today. It's been a lot of fun. So we need to take a short break. Just ahead, I'll speak with Chris Hutchins. He's the CEO and co-founder of personal finance startup Grove. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, CSXM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 